0: Folk with its schicksal <laughs>
1: I'm Theron Tolsma, and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy in Toronto, where I am a junior member. We're gathering friends and members of our ICS community here on this podcast to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways those things interact. We hope Critical Faith gives you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS.
2: This semester, we're asking senior members and junior members to continue their conversations outside the classroom. Often, this looks like staying after class to hash out a final question, having conversations all the way down our very long hallway, or meeting for coffee to workshop an idea that was born from class discussions. It's encounters like this, big and small, that make up the spirit of an ICS education. My name is Danielle Yett, and I'm pleased to say that today, we're inviting our academic dean, Gideon Strauss, and our senior member in the history of philosophy, Bob Sweetman, back into the Critical Faith studio. They'll be with us for the next few weeks, sharing a multi-part introductory series on reformational philosophy. If you have no idea what reformational philosophy is, or if you're intrigued to hear Gideon's and Bob's take on the tradition, stick with us for the next few weeks to see what happens. Now, on with the show. Inspiration can strike at unexpected moments, and for a student, there's nothing quite like the feeling of something clicking, of an idea long percolating at the back of your mind finally rushing to the fore, of connections being forged. So for our first segment, we're asking our new junior members to share some enlivening, entertaining, and challenging moments when they've experienced just such sparks of inspiration. Today's question, what has been your favorite and or the most challenging paper you've written this year?
3: Well, I have only written one paper, so I'm going to go with that one. Um, I combined two of my papers into one giant monstrosity of a paper, um, which was really interesting because I had never written anything that long. Um, but the themes, they were both for classes with Nick, and the themes just worked really well together. So I talked about um, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in Exodus and then more broadly, like theological perspectives on freedom. So, uh, yeah, so I looked, I've always, its it's been kind of just, you know, like a recurring question. I've always wondered, like, what does it mean when the Bible says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart? Um because even as a kid I I kind of was like, "Oh, that seems really unfair. Like Pharaoh didn't really have a choice." Um and so so I chose that passage for my bib foundations paper because um I had always wondered about it and it was it was really challenging um because there's no one interpretation that I found like fully satisfactory. And so um, I guess I came to the conclusion, like looking at sort of the structure of the narrative um, and the different language used for hardening, uh, I came to the conclusion that uh, what Pharaoh was doing and what God was doing is, is not quite as simple as just, you know, God arbitrarily making decisions um, or... There, there was, It's not the kind of determinism that we would think it is. Um, and so I think it's really significant that Pharaoh makes his own choices um, first, actually, in the narrative. So he actually hardens his own heart. That's one thing. Um, second, that God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart is um, it's not permanent. Like, God hardens Pharaoh's heart, and then Pharaoh hardens his own heart again after that. And so but we still through the narrative we also see an intensification and so at some there's some point where pharaoh has hardened his heart um where i guess how i see it is that god gives him over to that hardening and so it's it's with the view of ultimately i would say like judgment unto salvation like that's a phrase that nick would use to describe it and i find that's a really helpful um lens through which to analyze the story because that's that's not the end. Um, God takes his people out of Egypt. He confronts evil in sort of a concentrated manner when he hardens Pharaoh's heart so that he can overcome it, so that Israel can be freed, so that the Messiah can come and eventually um, be a light to all nations, and that includes Egypt and, I guess, Pharaoh too. Um, and so... So yeah, so then that took me into discussion of like broader, different uh, theological paradigms for freedom. So I looked at some open theism, I compared it to classical theism, and then I looked at sort of a new, a new view of freedom, um, which was in Jeff Hawking's book, uh, Freedom Unlimited. Um, and so yeah, it was both very challenging and rewarding.
1: My most challenging paper, let's see. The one for Nick's class was fun because it was uh, mostly biblical exegesis with the help of other people who were better than me at that. <laughs> and like even thinking about like how far I've come in this in that past semester like being able to read the Bible in a totally different way and get new meaning out of it that w- you would never expect on a, on a surface level. So I I was writing about Malachi, which often gets forgot because it's at the very end of the Old Testament and it's very short, but there's a lot of good, good wisdom in there about justice and fear and the the passage that I use is chapter 2, 10 to 16, which is talking about divorce and how um, I think it's... The the NRSV translation says that um, God says he hates divorce, which immediately struck me as something interesting. So I I started by just examining some of the other translations and they're all very different throughout that whole like six for ver- six or seven verse passage. So I thought that's kind of interesting. Why is it so? hard for people to get pinned down like a precise um, or relatively precise translation of this and then so I did some more research and kept looking and there's there's um, really tricky the Hebrew is really tricky to to translate because it's like a literal translation doesn't really make sense but the like a more figurative translation is also kind of like there's still something missing. So one one person, one specifically a woman woman's um, interpretation was that there's there's they're dealing with dealing with infertility. So there are certain fertility practices that w- led to um, I- uh, idolatry and the, the divorce of their Jewish wives or wives in general or. Something like that. So there's a connection between the divorce or sending. The direct translation was the sending away of these women and marrying women of a different God. Um, and so they're they're trying to figure out why that would happen and why God would hate that. So yeah, that that was a enjoyable and challenging sounding paper
4: well the most challenging paper for me would be this paper that I'm still working on <laughs> makes sense <laughs> uh, it's for Gmo's O's class uh, postmodern theories of intersubjectivity and I'm trying to write something interesting <laughs> about the notion of proximity as a uh, as a new way of thinking of our God, our relationship with God, where um, traditionally there would be um, notions of ecstasy or, you know, entheos, like it being enthused by God, you know, being. Possessed by God, or, you know, like having this mystical experience of experiencing God in ecstasy. I want to see if I can find a way to overcome that kind of, um, one way or the other. Like it's either you or me completely, um, kind of, uh, equation, uh, by looking at proximity and having just enough space between you and I uh, to feel the other's presence um, but also keep myself intact Um, so I'm also thinking of this notion of non-identical repetition um, through which not just the self as the subject is formed in relation to the other but just the whole relationship itself, it becomes more and more clear through this repetition. Mm, yeah, so I'm I'm there. Uh, it's it's so interesting. It's such a fascinating way of rethinking um, relationships. Um, it's liberating in a way too. Um, think of proximity and how there's room for breathing and well, let's say in. In thinking of our relationship with God, there's the room for Holy Spirit to breathe in and out uh, in between the spaces um, while uh, my subjectivity can be respected so that God can be enjoyed (laughs) even more. Yeah, so maybe it's a bit ambitious and maybe that's why it's taking so long to finish. But yeah, so that's what I'm working on and hopefully be able to finish soon.
5: staple of everyday life here at ICS is the rhythm of classes. Every week, senior and junior members gather to discuss shared texts and explore various philosophical, theological, and historical themes together. The classroom is where studying at ICS most obviously becomes a communal project. For our second segment, we're attempting to bridge the divide between the classroom and life. So we're inviting our senior members to introduce us to some of their current and upcoming courses. First up, we've asked Bob Sweetman for a crash course in reformational philosophy, which is one of the introductory courses every student takes here at ICS. Today, we're introducing some backstory by talking to Bob about a key figure behind the development of reformational philosophy, Abraham Kaper, and the idea of principled Pluralism. So, welcome, Bob. Thanks. Glad to be here. In recent episodes of Critical Faith, uh, in which we spoke with Matthew Kaming uh, of Fuller Seminary about Christian hospitality and Muslim immigration, Matt said that his approach is informed by the principled pluralism of Abraham Kaper. I don't know if everybody who's listening to this podcast knows about Abraham Kaper. So, Wikipedia says that. Abraham Kaper lived from 1837 to 1920. He was the founder of a Christian church denomination, of a newspaper, of a university, of a political party, and he was Prime Minister of the Netherlands from 1901 to 1905. So, Bob, shall we start our conversation by talking about the quite different ways in which you and I came to Kaper?
0: Sure. I would say I, I grew up in a home of someone who was a convert to uh, Abraham Kuyper's sense of the world. Um, he had grown up in a much more um, otherworldly pietist denomination, uh, a Dutch Calvinist denomination, but uh, much more um, reclusive and uh, even more uh, introverted uh, than the denomination he ended up in. And Kuyper was part of what opened him up that a Christian could have a calling in the world, that the world didn't have to be uh, uh, understood as uh, the place of demonic domination, but rather could be seen also as under the providence of God. So uh, Kuiper was one of his uh, heroes, and, um, and I was um, a filial child, and therefore Kuyper became one of my heroes. And really, uh, Kuiper was understood in, I would have to say now, hagiographical uh, terms, as mm-hmm. the, um, the protagonist of all the very best stories of uh, faithful living.
5: I want to ask you a little bit more about that, but I'm particularly interested in the ways in which the, the, the difference between sort of growing up with Kuiper and coming to Kuiper later in life. I resonate with what you say about your dad. Because I consciously came to an awareness of Capra and Capra's work in my late teens, maybe even early twenties, for the first time, sort of in a quest for a constructive Christian politics. After in South Africa, spending my my teens out of necessity, drawing primarily on resistance traditions in in Christian approaches to to politics, and so trying to hunt down. Uh, figures in history or in, in in my own time in the 80s, late 80s, early 90s, um, who had a constructive vision, who who could see how Christians could respond to, uh, take responsibility for the life of, of political communities. And so for me, the, the caper I came to was kind of a, a selective caper. You know, it was little bits of caper that helped me to think and do what I wanted to think and do. And so it took me quite a while to get around to what was problematic in in Kuiper. But that feels different to me, right? or I imagine it to be different from growing up in a household sort of suffused with the uh, Kuiperian ethos.
0: Well, I think uh, this business of Kuiper as useful as, a, as an engine, uh, an orienting engine, I think that really was... How he was how he functioned in my uh in, for, for my father and hence um, you know by a kind of generational trickle down for me, and that was that his sense that um, uh, the, the totality of the creation is um, is the context within which christian uh faithfulness is to be made manifest um really was um you know, this became a kind of uh, engine for him. He was very um, uh, active in uh, the civil rights movement in the, in the early '60s. Um, he was a chaplain uh, at the University of Illinois, Illinois in Champaign, which was definitely a place where, um, on the border, you might say, between a southern mentality and a northern, between Chicago and Mississippi, you might say, halfway between Chicago and Mississippi, and so. A lot of things were coming together, um, and as Martin Luther King's uh, f- Freedom Train North started to to move in 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 the in the mid '60s, he he jumped on as part of uh, the Rainbow Coalition of pastors uh, to fight things like uh, reality redlining and so on and so forth. And this was, you know, this was just this is how one is faithful in this context. And so Kuiper's language was used to inflect. Uh, a sense that the Christian life was not meant to be reclusive but rather was to be one that was engaged mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so yeah that's that's how he used it. I'm a much more contemplative person I have to say and uh and so um that may made a lot of sense to me um but i've had to find other dimensions in Kuiper uh, in order to feed my my uh, slightly different um, intuitions. Mm-hmm. So I need a contemplative side. So I've had to recover Kuiper's flirtation with um, Pietist, uh, the Pietist movement in the Netherlands, um, which you get in. Uh, some of his um uh, meditation series like mm-hmm. to be near to God mm-hmm. that uh, was translated a while ago well translated paraphrased really mm-hmm. uh, where he's you know where he's working in a mode that would uh would be um attractive to the the full uh full on uh pietist uh community that was part of the um the coalition that he and hermann ba um uh fused together into an ecclesiastical denomination in the late nineteenth century, so I've had to look at that uh, or look for that and to see how that m- maps onto his uh, activism um and his interest in um you know the sort of sedimented habits uh that we articulate theologically, uh, or that we articulate the faith through uh, theologically. So, mm-hmm. you know, the doctrinal interest, the interest in spirituality and the interest in uh, uh, an activist um, issue, like the totality has been interesting to me. So it wasn't the activist per se, but the yeah, activist yeah. Uh, living out of a deep spirituality on the one hand and a... Um, uh, a, uh, a sense that the, uh, the theological tradition still had much to say yeah. to the contemporary context. Yeah.
5: It's interesting that you draw that connection between the activist caper and the contemplative caper. Um, I have a friend in Washington, D.C., Stephen Garber, who is a, an evangelical Anglican, but who would say and would encourage other pe- to other people uh, that paying attention to Abraham caper in these two modes, the activist caper and the contemplative caper is valuable for people in a city like Washington DC who have political vocations to sort of pay attention to those aspects in caper's life and then consider for themselves um, because the, the people that Steve tend to work with tend to be political activists, how they can resource themselves contemplatively. And so that I think it's a really valuable um, connection to consider in the yeah. life of someone like Kepler.
0: Yeah, uh, we had a conference here in 1995, um, uh was, was a really wonderful Leiden uh, historian of theology, um, and I'm trying to furiously to remember <laughs> his first name, but at any anyway. rate, uh he I gave a paper on mysticism in Kuiper at this conference and it didn't make it into uh in the free Phry- and phrygian, phrygian, phrygian mode and that's a good thing. Um I was the editor, so I had something to say about that. But so I, so footnote in the Phrygian mode, what is that? Uh it's a conference proceeding of this conference that was held in nineteen ninety-five. But in the conference, after my paper, um he came up to me and he says, Yeah, I recognize what you're saying. But I have a slightly more cynical reading of Kuiper and and uh, to be near to God, and that is that uh, he was. This was a little bit the middle finger coming up at the at the pietist saying, "I can do it too, and I can do it better than you." <laughs> so this was very very cynical, and I would never go there. But I thought, well, that's an interesting uh, uh, perspective, and it um, it gets at a kind of ambivalence that. Um, Almost everyone who is still connected to the church, and in particular, the Protestant church in the Netherlands, seems to have about Kuiper. Nobody is neutral about Hmm. Kuiper.
5: I mean, that's interesting to me. It's a beautiful song in Dutch by the singer-songwriter, Steph Bos. I think the title in the Dutch is When Faith Was Ordinary, or When Faith Was Regular, or When Faith Was Common. Um, And he... Uh, our boss, uh wrote the song as the theme music for a television show in the Netherlands recently on uh, contemporary spirituality in the Netherlands against the backdrop in the case of the song of the difference between his own spirituality as a contemporary Dutch person and the spirituality of his mom and dad who grew up in Kuyper's churches. And so it's, in, in my experience, people um, who grow up in a kind of Kuiperian milieu uh, have much more skepticism and cynicism in relation to Kuiper than uh, people like myself who Discover Caper in bits and pieces, you know, that that we find useful. So we are going to explore the ambiguities of the legacy of Abraham Caper and Hermann Dueviert and Dirk Vollenhoven in a number of episodes here on Critical Faith. And I want us to, to move in this episode to thinking about that aspect of Käper's legacy that Matt Keming mentioned as helpful to him as he considered contemporary religious difference and how we negotiated in the Netherlands, in America, in Canada, elsewhere. So when people in the tradition of Abraham Kuiper talk about, as Matt Kemic does, quotation marks principled pluralism, what are they talking about?
0: Um, well in uh, Jim Bratt's book on Kuiper, I think um, he he um, the way he positions this is in terms of uh, the problem of historical secularization. So uh the 19th and 20th century are um centuries of unprecedented uh complexification of the uh of structures of society the differentiation of a variety of different um irreducible ways of being in society uh that hadn't um hadn't really um well, it was a challenge. Um, so, as you move from a, a simpler society where there's lot, where lots uh, where you have few institutions that do many many things, to a society in which you you gradually have a specialization um, that becomes ever more um, uh, differentiated. Um, this is both an opportunity and a challenge to to a society and. Um, and when uh, in, the, in the West, this came, what came along with it and was seen by very many people to be intrinsic to it was a secularization. That is to say that this differentiation is such that the, the, the religious centra of the society have a, an ever smaller but ever more distinct place in, in that society. So one small sphere to be set alongside so many other spheres that are emerging. So in, in that context, uh, what do you do with this connection that so many were making between differentiation, which is a, is a phenomenon that seems like a roller coaster that needs to be responded to because it's, in, it's ineluctable. It's, it's going to run you over if you try and stop it. That, on the one hand, and secular, secularization, which you, as a Christian, absolutely have to find a way to resist. So, you know, one way to go would be to say, um, we refuse to acknowledge the modern world. Uh, in other words, we insist that in order to um, maintain a context where Christian landmarks are obvious because they're, you know, they were created in, in a simpler Less differentiated world, um, we insist on stopping historical development. It's going to be this way. It's going to be a, a less differentiated, uh, where the church, you know, is the centrum for all kinds of things that now have come to be associated elsewhere. I mean, I can give you one example in the in the Middle Ages, uh, contract contract law involved swearing on relics. Well the church was you know had a monopoly you might say on relics and therefore was absolutely uh, an inexorable feature of uh, of the development of, of the economy a capitalist economy in fact so you know so you can you can you can you can posit yourself as anti-modern and that is to say posit yourself as anti-differentiation um and you know modernity as has inspired or provoked uh, many such things. Not all Christian. I mean, uh, in Doiwiet's read, and we'll be talking about Doiwiet as we go forward, mm-hmm. um, that's his reading of uh, National Socialism, is that it's a kind of regressive, a longing for a simpler world, mm-hmm. um, in which um, something like uh, a genetic people uh, controlled, uh, their own destiny had and controlled their own destiny so so you can have that you can embrace the uh, the secularization along with the differentiation or you can uh, uh, accept the differentiation uh, and hence a secularization of uh, in terms of a clerical understanding of the church uh, in order to protect uh, a kind of uh, you know, the, um, the capacity of Christians of a ver- in a variety of different stations vis-a-vis the church, mm-hmm. um, being able to be leaders in these, these many different uh, social spheres that, that are emerging. And that's what Kuiper did. Uh, in other words, he embraced, you might say, uh, a societal structural secularization in order to preserve... A sense that it is all about faithfulness, and therefore, on a deeper level, it remains religiously uh, rooted in in your experience as a Christian follower of Jesus. So that, on the one hand, Um, but you you know, uh, as opposed to insisting that the only way you can uh, maintain uh, a broad sense of your life as uh, the life of, of faithfulness, Christian faithfulness is by resisting uh, differentiation. Principle pluralism is this accepting societal differentiation and hence a certain kind of secularization yeah. in order to preserve a deeper religious root.
5: Would you say that the, the very particular context in which Kaper forged this kind of principle pluralism for the community of people that he directly served would you say that that context of the Netherlands in the second half of the 19th century and the range of um our communities emerging around diverse perspectives on religion affected the the format so to speak of his principal pluralism so if i if i'm not mistaken it was a setting in which the sort of anti-religious modernization or secularization had strong proponents who would have called themselves either liberal or socialist that emerged as these different communities. Um, Capra himself um, seemed to be part of a kind of a revitalized or renewed Reformed community, there was a, a large minority Catholic community in the Netherlands. so and with that range of religious diversity, the particular range of religious diversity present at that time. So not a lot of Muslims, a tiny Jewish community, nonetheless a Jewish community, very little other kinds of religious diversity. did that affect the way in which he shaped his principal pluralism? I'm sure it
0: is. Uh, the business of dealing with ideological uh, differentiation mm-hmm. is one that all of what we now think of as Western Europe it, it was struggling with. And some form of principled pluralism you find in France, you find in Italy, mm-hmm. you find in Germany, and so on and so forth. So, what you would say, I would say, is that because of Kuyper's, um you know, success in so many areas. Um, I think what you get is the mo. It's probably the most self-conscious um, principle pluralist society that develops uh, mm. in in the context of the age of ideology. But the Kingdom of Belgium is a pluralized society in the nineteenth and in the twentieth century, and this is where Christian democracy really, in in its Catholic form, got its beginning. Was really in in Belgium, yeah. uh, Germany uh you know there was a concordat between the papacy and the German government right of uh Kaiser Wilhelm you know that was worked out and uh you know and that even even Hitler couldn't uh you know he had to he had to live in terms of uh France uh the same you had an enormous Catholic revival in the 19th century and uh None of these secular people can break with each other because otherwise the the priests are going to get you.
5: Oh, right. So, in
0: in this context of ideological uh, plurality, um, you know, Kuiper is facing this in the Netherlands and he becomes a voice to structure society in a way that will uh, allow these different ideological communities to live without. The result of permanent revolution, Mm -hmm. which, of course, in the context of the aftermath of the French Revolution, was a real possibility. Right? I mean, as late as 1849, you still have, in the name of the French Revolution, you have revolutionary movements um, that are causing mayhem. And so, how do we avoid this? And you know, the the principal pluralism is a response that is most. Highly articulated in the Dutch context and because of the career of Kuiper, but it's to be found in less articulated forms everywhere. The communist pillar still exists in Italy. You know, there are towns where, unless you're a communist, you are never going to be elected.
5: So, the, there are two words that you use that I want to pick up on, and I'm going to try and remember to do both. The one is revolution, and the other is pillar. Um, I'm going to start with revolution. So I guess this backdrop of the the enduring effects of the French Revolution and the range of revolutionary movements emerging out of that, um, I think I've just heard you say that there was, therefore, for Caper and others, a concern around permanent revolution. Caper called the political party that he founded the anti-revolutionary party. What did you mean by that?
0: Well, I mean, that's a complicated story, but you know, he, had a, he had a political patron, uh, and that was uh, uh, Grun van Prinster, uh, who of course was known for, uh, or came to be known for, uh, one of his books, uh, Unbelief in Revolution, uh, which is heavily dependent on the Catholic counter-revolution and the pamphlet literature that it developed, mm. you know, which was to identify the French Revolution with um, atheism. Mm-hmm. or unbelief. And uh, Grun really accepted this. So in other words, um, uh, so this move represented a rupture of the continuity of Western civilization for him and, th- and Western civilization was civilization in effect for him. And therefore um, what you look what you were looking at is a rupture that you would have to call demonic. And so Grun's party was the Christian Historical Party, and Kuiper's the Anti Revolutionary Party. And so I think what he meant to signal uh, with the with his name, the Anti Revolutionary Party, is on the one hand, there's the rejection of uh, uh, that dimension of the revolution which is um, antithetical to uh, Christian faith. So that you know there was a kind of uh, that was a side of the revolution that was not I mean you know the revolution was complicated but sure, that was yeah. definitely a side of the revolution uh, but I think the anti as opposed to counter was uh, really an attempt to say that uh, a future cl- uh, political engagement of the Christian community ought in a in a certain sense not to be on the scale of a positive and its negation that is to say revolution as the positive and then counter-revolution as we need to undo the positive, but rather the anti-revolution is to say, if revolution is the dominant uh, dynamic, um, that needs to be resisted, but in order to move past the dichotomy between revolution and counter-revolution. So I think what he was trying to say is that we need to resist the revolution because it's the predominant, it's the positive dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, but we need to do so in a way that isn't, as it were, still caught within a, you know, an affirmation and its negation. We need to get into a different place altogether.
5: Yeah. To, to touch on the other word uh, that I caught in, in uh, what you said earlier, the word pillar, so, in the context of Abraham Kaper's principle of pluralism and the Netherlands of the late nineteenth century, early twentieth century, what does pillar mean?
0: Yeah, well, it's a way of choreographing ideological difference. So, hmm. why, you know, by the mid nineteenth century, um, you have all these different um, uh, communities. You might say some religious, some. Um, um, political economic in the case of socialism and, and communism um, but you have all these communities that come to uh, have different visions unorganized visions of, of the good and so this is a way of choreographing their relationship with each other that stops short of revolution but so it's to establish a framework for competition on a level field, right, a level playing field between these various communities which forces these communities to develop a very articulate sense of the good that comes to expression in a variety of different social uh, institutional contexts like labor unions, chambers of commerce, school systems, universities, Political parties and so on. Um, so, uh, it, as to the body politic, um, they all, that competition uh, leads to their participation in the political process uh, and in the context of uh, proportional representation, where you know provided their community is big enough, they're going to be represented in um, the parliament, and therefore the parliament is not going to have a majority, so that there's going to have to be compromise. So, mm-hmm. you can develop your idea of the good and you can propagate it like crazy, um, but once the election is over, you have to find a way to live together, and, and so. The communities and their institutions that have a kind of ideological purity to them represent the pillars, and then the pillars support a roof in which all, you know, mm-hmm. all the pillars are on the inside of, so to speak, and that is um, the uh, kind
5: of pragmatic political horse trading. Yeah. So when I read that history, and I and I'm not I'm not an expert on it, it would seem to me that. Kaper made his argument for principle pluralism and for this kind of, let's say, then polarization of specifically Dutch society as a, um, as a pragmatic accommodation. So you have these different communities in a society who are um, arranged around different visions of the good and different visions of the common good who from a position of non-dominance, uh, Kaper accepted and then negotiated in such a way that the community of which he was a part could accomplish some admittedly attenuated version of their vision of the common good in the Netherlands. So my sense is that while well, Kaper argued for this as a principled approach, it was one informed by a pragmatic necessity. When I find, you know, in in my own subsequent appropriation of Capra's thought, and in the appropriation of Capra's thought by someone like Matthew Kaming, I think what one finds is an, an almost dehistoricized or ahistorical appropriation of this notion that Different communities arranged around different visions of the common good, living adjacent to each other, is in itself a good. So, a vision of the common good as one in which such diversity is celebrated and and not just accommodated to, but advocated for. So, how fair or unfair is is that reading?
0: Well, it's a um, it's a, a post. Kuyperian reading, it's a way you can take the Kuyperian heritage. But I mean, if if you look at what Kuyper is doing, Calvinists still made up a huge, I mean, people who felt the appurtenance and who went to church and and so on and so forth, they still made up a very, very large uh, segment of the Dutch population. And I think Kuyper is going, we need to get in the competition because the competition's happening. Anyway, we need to be part of this. Uh, and by the we, he meant not the uh, uh, Calvinist patricians, like Groon. He meant the, what he called the little people, uh, the petit bourgeoisie, the shopkeeper, the small farmer. Mm-hmm. And he was the voice of this segment because the the denomination that he formed was a denomination largely formed of this sociological layer okay. of yep. the little people. Mm-hmm. And uh, they did not have the vote. He's the one who got them the franchise, mm. and so on. Because you, it, it was really a democracy. You had to own enough land uh, or, ha- or uh, have access to enough wealth uh, to be thought worthy of being a political agent. Mm. So, you know, he, I, he saw this as a re-Christianization. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is, we can compete, we have a vision of the good, we're going to develop these institutions, a school system, a university, labor unions, the, the whole nine yards, and we are going to propagate this, just like everybody else, mm-hmm. and because we are propagating the truth, because this is all tied in and rooted in the gospel for him, it's going to win. We're going to take back the Netherlands, that's, that's his project, okay. yeah. and of course it doesn't have to stay that, yeah. the next generation may not need that, yeah. Yeah. in other words that may not be a possibility in, for example, in the Netherlands now where you've had the unchurching of the vast majority of the population, you only have what about 7% come to church regularly, uh, and so on and so forth, and in that context, uh, repristinization yeah. That is not on. Yeah. Survival's on.
5: Yeah. I'm having a slightly uncomfortable response to the account that we just heard of Abraham Kaper. I'm seeing a lot of Dutch farmers and small shopkeepers with little red hats let's say, make the Netherlands great again. And so uh, we will come back to Keper in our next episode and look at the connection between Keper and our own Institute for Christian Studies, a connection that can be traced through the influence of Keper on the philosophers Hammond de and Dirk Vollenhoven, on to our Institute for Christian Studies and its founding generation. And I am just going to sit with my terror for a week.
1: and that brings us to our final segment what's your pleasure this is where we and our weekly guests get to kick off our shoes and talk about the other things we do for fun The movies and television shows we are watching, the sports and games we play, the food and drink we make and enjoy, the music we listen to, and so on. So Gideon, what's your pleasure? The first
5: pleasure that I want to mention is uh, the existence of Groundling Theatre Company. So Groundling is a Toronto Theatre Company that specializes in uh, productions of Shakespeare plays, and um, they recently finished a run of Shakespeare's Julius Caesar Crows Theatre here in Toronto, and I saw one of the the shows, and I cannot wait uh, to see the next Shakespeare that they produce. I I really enjoy what they do. I do want to mention a a second pleasure mm-hmm. which came to mind just moments ago when you talked about um, uh, taking our shoes off. Oh, yeah. So possibly my greatest pleasure of the last year is the fact that when I get to the office in the winter, I can <laughs> take my shoes off <laughs> and I can put on my wonderful glare office slippers. <laughs> and so glare are a great pleasure in mm, my life. There you go.
2: My pleasure is strangely in a roundabout way, also shoe related now that I think of it. Um, I am also actually now wearing the shoes that I'm going to mention. I got hiking boots for Christmas because my recent pleasure has become walking through the ravine by my house, uh, specifically in the kind of weather that we have today, which is very snowy and like big, calm, like flakes floating down um and it's just you're in a ravine in the middle of the city and it feels like you're not in the middle of the city and it's very peaceful and calming and there tend to be a lot of dogs that wander around through there so it's just it's become a very prominent source of pleasure in my life lately so walking through kind of woods on snowy days Mm -hmm. to take robert frost out of context (laughs)
5: um, I'm looking forward to future conversations about walking in Toronto because I have a book on my desk that I actually got from Danielle about walking in Toronto, Mm -hmm. great walks. Mm -hmm. I am not a fluffy, snowy day walker, so I'm looking forward to the arrival of spring to explore those walks. See,
2: I feel like you would become a fluffy, snowy day walker if you walked through the ravine. It's beautiful and very peaceful. I honestly think you would like it.
5: Okay, I might take you up on that. (laughs)
0: Um, I read at night to get to sleep. So, you know, you spend all day looking at screens and often that gets in the way of, of feeling sleepy. So I read novels and I read novels because otherwise my writing style tends to become um preciously academic and <laughs> sclerotic is probably a good <laughs> word for it. So novels keep keep uh it's like adding uh, what moisturizer cream to my <laughs> writing style. So I read novels. And uh, I've been reading Barbara King Sol- solver novels lately. I found, I found a bunch uh, once in a bookstore and bought them because I've, I've been reading her for years. And the ones that I've been reading lately um, are, are all really um, about her incredible sense of the natural world. Uh, as a source of wonder, um, as as terribly fragile, uh, and therefore, um, necessarily a source for human concern. Um, Just to give you an idea of how she um, is just so good at evoking wonder is the beginning of uh, Prodigal Summer, which is an older novel of hers from the 90s, I think. Um, She starts uh, by uh, having her protagonist uh, observe uh, a lunar moth in flight. And um, of course, uh, moths and butterflies use the sense of smell in order to orient themselves to the world. And of course, I didn't know this. uh, But then suddenly, you're able to make sense of the... erratic flight of a lunar moth, because the smell will change places, given the wind. And uh, so as she goes, you get this, this sense of meaning opening up uh, where you didn't expect to find it. And that just carries on throughout that book and um, just sort of sucks you in. And suddenly you have a sense, I mean, I'm a city boy. So, you know, to have this kind of a sensitivity to the
1: natural world is um, a gift. For my pleasure, I I have found access to a a Disney Plus account, (laughs) one way or another. So I've been watching some of the TV shows from my childhood, which is always a a strange thing because you don't really, like, at least for me, I don't have a visual memory of these things. But it's like a strange unconscious feeling, like you've, it's like Deja Vu, almost like you've seen it before. You can't rem- put your finger on it, but I, so I've been watching Winnie the Pooh, <laughs> and there's one Winnie the Pooh movie that's actually quite like they break the fourth wall all the time because it's like the movie is is showing like a, the different stories through a book, so it's reading a book through the story. So the characters will like jump from page to page, and then like the the words will fall off the page and dance around and all that kind of stuff. So it's very it's very fun, but yeah. It's, it's strange to, to see something that you know you've seen before, but you can't quite put your finger on it.
2: That's it for our show this week. We'll be back with Gideon and Bob again next week for the second episode of our series on Reformational Philosophy. Specifically, we'll introduce the figure of Herman Dooyeweerd and how he moves the conversation forward. So please join us then. If you'd like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can visit us at icscanada.edu. If anything from this week's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith@icscanada.edu. You can also find us on Twitter. You can follow me as at You can follow Gideon as at Gideon Strauss, and you can follow ICS as at INSCHR.
1: And from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, follow along with us on Spotify, or find us on your podcast app of choice. Remember, following and reviewing the podcast helps people find us and keeps us on their radar. Most importantly, tell your friends.